0: We are engaged in an enormous study on the church. It's an exciting study, but it's an enormous study. For a few of us ever stop to think about the church and how it is God has designed the church to be a vehicle by which he is able to communicate himself to a lost world. And so on the screen behind me, you understand that we have been looking at the meaning of the church whole series is the meaning, mission, and ministry of the church. And looking at the meaning, it tells us that the church is the plan of the Son of God, the possession of the living God, the pillar of the truth of God, the picture of the love of God, the product of the grace of God, and the priority of the people of God. And we've taken a brief moment to to pause right here on the priority of the people of God because so many times we just want to blow off church as if it doesn't mean that much. Not understanding that we are the church and the gathering together of the local assembly is of great importance. So much so that we looked last week at a verse in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, verse number 8, which says, when you regard vain idols or empty vanities then you will forsake your faithfulness. In other words, if there's something that becomes a priority to you that's empty and useless and vain, you will forsake your faithfulness. Jonah understood that. So that's why he talks about it in the belly of a fish as he begins to cry out to his God. And we told you last week that when you choose to do something on the Lord's day, other than worship the Lord, what you choose to do becomes the Lord you worship. We're not talking about people in the military who are engaged in protecting our country or, or nurses and doctors who are engaged in giving people health care. We're not talking about people that uh, are involved in uh, p- a police work or firefighting kind of work, those kind of jobs that take you out to protect and watch over and care for uh, people's lives. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about the things you choose to do. Because if you regard a vain idol, something that you choose to do on the Lord's day, other than worship the Lord as a priority, then that which you choose to do becomes your priority over the Lord. That's why you would forsake your faithfulness on the Lord's day. So let me illustrate that for you through the life of Israel. Turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 is an illustration of Jonah 2, verse number 8. And Jeremiah is prophesying right before the Babylonian captivity. And so he's warning the people, talking to them about the condition of their lives, what has taken place, what has transpired in their lives. And so in verse number 16 of chapter 1, the Lord says, I will pronounce my judgments on them, that is Israel, concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. In other words, they have gone after vain idols. They've gone after empty vanities and they have forsaken me. He says, down in verse number four, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after Emptiness and became empty? What is it about me that would cause Israel to turn away from me, walk after empty things, vain things, futile things, and then only end up being emptier than they've ever been? What would cause them to do that? It says... In verse number eight, at the end, they walked after things that did not profit. They pursued that that would not be a benefit to them. But what would cause someone to turn away from the living God and pursue something that would not be beneficial to them? And that's because everything outside of God is temporal. Everything with God is eternal. So, in verse number 11... Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? What a marvelous statement that is. He says, can you, can you name, name one Canaanite that would forsake their pagan god at all? And of course, their pagan gods were Ashtaroth and Baal. But the Canaanites, they have false gods, but yet they don't forsake their false gods. Or how about the Babylonians? They have false gods that really aren't gods. They have Bel and and Marduk. But can you name one Babylonian that would forsake their false god? Answer? No. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What a statement. God says, there isn't one pagan who worships a false god who's unfaithful to their false god. But I can name you my people who have the true God, the only God that matters, the living God, yet they have forsaken me, they have turned their back on me. And so God says, be appalled, O oh heavens, at this. And shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. He's like talking to the, the heavenly hosts and saying, can you, can, you, can you believe this? Can you understand? Can you wrap your angelic mind, as he speaks to the angelic hosts, Can you wrap your angelic mind around the fact that my people have forsaken me? The true God and gone after things that did did not profit? He says this. My people have committed two evils. If I was to ask you, the Lord says there's something evil, what would you say? Would you say, well, drunkenness. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, transgenderism. But he doesn't mention any of that. Because there's a deeper evil than that. So listen to what he says My people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Here are the two evils that my people have committed. They have forsaken me. I am the living God who provides living water. And they have turned their back on me. And you know what they did? They dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold absolutely no water. There's no profit. There is no life. There is nothing that will give them an advantage, but that's what they have done. God says that when you seek joy, when you seek satisfaction, when you seek pleasure outside of me, You will forsake me, and you will only dig for yourself a cistern that's broken and can hold no water. In other words, you will get no profit. You will obtain no advantage. You will be absolutely worse off than you've ever been before. The Lord says, it's simple. When you delight in that which is temporal, you will turn away from that which is eternal. And that's what Israel did. So, the Lord says in verse 17, have you not done this to yourself by your forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? He takes them all the way back to how he led them out of Egyptian bondage. How he provided for them all throughout the wilderness. How he took care of them. But you did this to yourself. I didn't do this to you. Nobody else did this to you. You did it to yourself. You chose to forsake me, the well of living water. And you would regard Vain idols as more important to me. Therefore, you have forsaken your faithfulness. You have forsaken your God. You have turned your back on me. That's what happens when someone places someone or something else as a priority over the true and living God. But why would they do that? Why would anybody do that? What would cause someone to move that direction? If they did it to themselves, why and how? Well, good news, the Lord tells us. He tells us. Verse number 19. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Why? And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God. That's why. The dread of me, the fear of me is not in you. That's why you have forsaken me. A hundred years earlier, before the writer Jeremiah, there was Isaiah the prophet. You know what Isaiah said as he was prophesying? Isaiah chapter 8, verse number 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. So a hundred years earlier, Isaiah is prophesying and saying, listen, you're going to regard God as holy. You can't regard vain idols. You've got to regard the Lord God as holy. And he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. If not, you will forsake your faithfulness. He says, verse 14, then he should become a sanctuary, a resting place, a place of safety. If God is the one you fear, he becomes your safe haven. If God is the one you dread, he becomes your refuge, your security, your protection. But to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. Hundreds of years before that, Moses would say these words in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, verse 29, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them, with their sons, forever. Moses says, oh, that they would fear God. It says in, verse, in chapter 6, verse number 1 of Deuteronomy, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. This is what you got to do. You got to fear the Lord. He goes on and says in verse number 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And then at verse number 24. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival. Chapter 8, verse 6. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Chapter 13, verse number 4, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, cling to him. And then, over in chapter 30, verse number 9, so Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commended them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of, permission of, of of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place which he will choose, you shall read the law in front of all Israel in all their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your, in your town, so that they may hear And learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So, hundreds of years before Isaiah the prophet and before Jeremiah the prophet. Moses told them, you're going into the land. As you go into the land, you need to keep the commandments of God. You need to fear only him. He warns them, be careful. You're going to live in homes you did not build. You're going to draw water from cisterns that you did not dig. And you're going to to eat and you're going to be satisfied. But you be very, very careful that you do not forget the Lord your God that you fear only him. And he reiterates it over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again, again, and again. So when you come to the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he tells them, the Lord God should be your fear. He should be your dread. You should regard him as holy. And the reason you don't regard him as holy, as separate, as great as he is is because you don't fear him. You don't live in the dread of who he is. You treat him as if he's just another one of the pagan gods. You really don't care. So Jeremiah says to the Lord as the Lord speaks, be appalled, O heaven. Can you believe what my people have done? I warned them. I told them. They have forsaken me, the well of living water. And they dug for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. Can you believe that? They went off into captivity and suffered the consequences of their disobedience. And Jonah, from the belly of the fish, understanding the history of all that's taken place, realizes that if if I regard vain idols, empty vanities, temporal things as more pleasurable than my God, I will forsake my faithfulness. The church is the priority of the people of God. Those who love the Lord love his church. Love the assembly of the redeemed. Can't wait to be with them. Can't wait to minister with them. Can't wait to worship with them. Can't wait to be encouraged by them. Can't wait to be a part of that which says God inhabits the praises of his people. And so we told you last week the reason the church is the priority of the people of God that's because of the person that we exalt. Psalm 34. Oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then because of the ridicule and the repercussions, the retribution that we endure. Because of that. First Peter 4 says that friends used to hang around with them, malign you. John 15, Christ said, If they persecute me, they will persecute you. And then number three was because of the instruction. The instruction that we, we as a church, truly do embrace. We can't wait to hear what God has to say. And we gather together to embrace that instruction as a family, knowing that God has spoken. And we want to believe all that He says. That's where we left off last week. So let me finish our outline this morning. To help you understand why the church is a priority of the people of God. And that is the letter O. And that is the orthopraxy that we encourage. You say, what? The orthopraxy. Put it on the board for me, will you please, Don? The orthopraxy. What's orthodoxy? Right doctrine. What's orthopraxy? Right practice. We encourage the right practice. Why do we gather together as a priority? Because of the orthopraxy that we encourage. We want to encourage you. Hebrews 10, you know the verse. Verse number 24. The writer of Hebrews said this way, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is this constant encouragement that we're involved in. There is this constant desire to motivate, to stimulate, and to encourage you. The practice that we engage in. Listen to what Paul says over in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this in verse number nine. He says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God. Who calls you into His own kingdom and glory? We gathered you together. We implored you. We encouraged you, as a father would his own children, that you would walk worthy of the Lord, who's called you into His glorious kingdom. That's what we do. That's what happens when you gather together as a church. We implore. We encourage. We motivate. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the practice that we encourage. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner, verse 1, of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing Tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, you you are to do all you can to preserve that which God has given to us a unified body. We We don't pray for unity. We already have unity. We're one in Christ. He goes on to say this He says, There is one body, one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope. Of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one. We are one with Christ. We are all unified as one body. So we don't need to pray for unity. We need to preserve unity. We need to preserve that which God has given to us. So, how do we do that? Through the orthopraxy that we encourage. The practice that we encourage to motivate and stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that's what we do. That's why we gather together on the Lord's day to worship him, to honor him. And so doing, we're gathering together to move people on toward maturity in Christ. Next, not only the orthopraxy that we encourage, With the righteousness that we embrace. The righteousness that we embrace. Do you know that as we gather together, we are a visible manifestation of our invisible master? We are the visible manifestation of our invisible master. Why? Because he who knew no sin Became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to sin righteousness. There is a righteousness that we embrace, that we embody, excuse me. And that is we are declared righteous. In fact, Isaiah 61 says that we have the garments of God. And the garments of God are, as Isaiah sixty-one ten says, the robes of righteousness. We, we are clothed in these robes, robes of, of righteousness, that God himself has given us. That clock says a quarter to eight. We're going to be here a long time. Because <laughs> that clock's not moving. <laughs> I got no place else to go. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say is that, that, that the Lord has clothed us with these robes of righteousness. We, we all had this in common. We are a people of like precious faith. So when we get together and encourage one another to practice the things of God, we are practicing the righteousness that we have in Christ. We have been declared righteous before him. We have a positional righteousness, but there needs to be a, a practical righteousness that's lived out every single day. And so because as, as people of like precious faith, we gather together because we all are, are clothed with the same robe. We all had the same clothes on. I know that you're all dressed differently today, but spiritually speaking, we all had the same robe. It's called the robe of righteousness. And we embody that as a church. And As we gather together to minister to one another and to give glory to God, we make visible the invisible God we serve. To all who are around us. So that when we leave this place, we leave committed to living a righteous life. Paul says these words in in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 16, "Do Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves, the one whom you obey. Either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Listen, the way you used to be is that you just kept presenting your members as slaves to unrighteousness because that's all you could do. Because you were a slave to the one you obey. And you were in the kingdom of darkness, so all you could do was commit darkness deeds. But now that you've been saved by the grace of Almighty God, you're now slaves of the one who is righteous. So now you obey him and you follow him because you want to live a sanctified, holy life. So when we gather together, that righteousness that is ours positionally, that we body as a, as a church, now we are motivated and stimulated to live out in practice because we see others and their righteous life, and their commitment to Christ, and their desire to honor Christ. And and that's what we want. And it moves us and motivates us to live that way. So the church is the priority of the people of God because the person we exalt, Christ the Lord, he's the king. The rejection we endure because we exalt Christ above (coughs) all else because he is our king because the instruction we embrace the orthopraxy we encourage the righteousness we embody and next because of the intimacy we enjoy the intimacy that we enjoy there is something unique about the body of Christ We are members of one body. We have one father. We are members of one temple. We have one priest. We are members of one bride. We have one bridegroom. And there's an intimacy that we enjoy that cannot be duplicated anywhere else because we have been brought together into the body of Christ and we are his possession. He owns us. We are his. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, for, verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he Desire. God has placed us in the body because that was his desire. And then it says down in verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of that body. That's why it's so important (coughs) that we deal with sin. Why? Why? Because sin destroys intimacy. Sin divides the body. Sin disrupts unity. And sin dismantles our testimony. And so, before the Lord ever birthed the church, he gave us instructions for the church. In Matthew chapter 16, he tells us it was the plan of the Son of God. (coughs) Excuse me. In Matthew 18, he talks to us about the purity of the church. And how to deal with sin in the church when a member sins. And when a, when a member decides to live not in the way that God would have them live. And so you go to that brother and you confront that brother. Why? Because we all are the members of the same body. And if you engage in sin, unrepentant sin, not just any sin, but unrepentant sin on a continual basis, what that does is destroy, destroys our intimacy, divides us as a body, dismantles our testimony, and disrupts all that God has for us. That's why... In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira were killed in church because they lied to the Holy Spirit, God made sure that the tone was set early on in the church. When you sin against me, it costs. And I can't have an impure church trying to reach an impure world. I need to have a pure church a sanctified church, a holy church, trying to reach an unsanctified, unholy, impure world. So the Lord set the tone very early on in the book of Acts after the birth of the church to deal with sin in the church. Why? Because we are an intimate unit it's like sinning your family, right? At home. When, when, when someone in your family sins, you just will say, ah, it's okay. Go right ahead. Live any way you want. It's okay. No big deal. No, it's a big deal. Why? Because it, it disrupts the, the entire unity of your family and begins to destroy the intimacy of your family. How many times do, do, do we see in, 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 in the life of our earthly families what's happening with, with sin between husbands and wives or between children and their parents or between children and children that cause so much disruption? You have to deal with it as a father. Same is true in the church. For if you don't deal with it, one sinner, Ecclesiastes 9.18, destroys much good. Just one. One sinner. And the reason the church is a priority is because of the intimacy that we enjoy. We enjoy the oneness. We enjoy the unity. We, we enjoy the stimulation. We enjoy the motivation. We enjoy the praise. We enjoy being together. We just enjoy each other. Some of you say well <laughs> I'm not so sure I enjoy everybody in this, in, this, in this assembly. Listen, you're going to live forever with each other in eternity. And I know you're going to have a glorified body. and things are going to be perfect there. But you know what? You need to get used to living with each other because there's an intimacy that we enjoy as a family. Next is the truth we evidence. The truth we evidence. That's why the church is the priority of the people of God. The truth that we evidence, Christ says, "A new commandment I give to you, John 13, A new commandment. think a, a new commandment? Another one. We have 613 of them. We don't need any more. And the Lord says, "No, no, A new commandment I give to you. OK? And the new commandment is this: Not that you love one another as you love yourself. That doesn't work. You have to love yourself as I have loved you. Thus proving yourself to be my disciples. How do you prove you're a disciple of Christ? You love one another as Christ has loved you. That's the standard. He's the standard. He's the one and only standard. And so we follow him because of that. There's a truth that we evidence. When Christ says, all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another as I have loved you, there's a testimony that's at stake here. And we evidence that truth one toward another on a daily basis. Why? Because as Proverbs 23, 23 says, we buy truth and never sell it. That is, we do all we can to obtain the truth. And never compromise it. Never set it aside. Because truth what matters. And we want to evidence the truth of God. Christ is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. God is the God of truth. And so therefore, we want to evidence that truth. In evidencing that truth, we evidence our God, our Lord. So we teach the truth. We tell the truth. We translate the truth. We tremble at the truth. We make sure that we never tamper with the truth because we want to transfer the truth from generation to generation to generation because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And lastly, not least, The reason the church is a priority of the people of God is because of the yearning that we exhibit. The yearning that we exhibit. As a believer in Christ, there is at the depths of our heart this great yearning to be in the presence of our God. We cannot wait for him to return. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. If you are a part of the bride, you're living in anticipation of the bridegroom. If you're not living in anticipation of the bridegroom, you have to ask yourself Am I really a part of the bride of Christ? I've yet to meet a bride who isn't living in anticipation of her bridegroom, to live with him for the rest of her life. So Paul says in Philippians 3, verse number 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Not here on earth, it's in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If your citizenship is in heaven, you can't wait to be there because that's where your home is. And so you're eagerly waiting the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? He's going to take this lowly body. He's going to transform it into the image of his glory. Who can't wait for that? Uh, the older you get, the more you want that to happen. Believe me. But the bottom line is this. There's this yearning. There's this desire. There's this anticipation that every one of us has. So when we gather together, that's why Paul says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, that we don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together as we see what? The day drawing near. What day? The day of the return of Christ. The closer we get to the return of Christ, we can't afford to forsake the assembly of ourselves together because as we gather together, we, we get from one another that great desire and yearning to be in glory with Christ as his bride. For we are his body and he is the head. So the church, the church truly is the priority of the people of God. And I wonder today, can you actually Honestly, say it is your priority. The church of Jesus Christ is your priority. And to gather together with the people of God on the first day of the week, it's called the Lord's Day for a reason. It's the Lord's Day. And I will assume that because you're here, that is your desire. Because you are present with us this morning, this is your priority. That's why you're here. Because if you weren't here, there would be something else that was your priority, right? But you're here because it's your priority. And as you gather together with the people of God, you gather together with the bride. Have you ever been to a wedding? And, you know, I've been to many of them. I do tons of them, right? And I stand right here with the bridegroom. And the doors are shut, right? And the doors swing open. And the mother of the bride, she stands, and everybody stands to look at the glorious bride as she walks down the aisle. And for the bridegroom, maybe it's the first time he has seen her. I don't know. It's the first time that the rest of us have seen her. Maybe it's the first time he has seen her. And can you imagine that as, as she walks down the aisle in all of her beauty? I've never met an ugly bride. And they, they walk down all of her beauty. But just 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 think with me for a moment. The doors swing open. And there she stands. And her hair is all disheveled and a mess. And she has dirt all over her her wedding dress spilled all down it. Cuts on her arm. One slipper on, one slipper off. And she comes limping down the aisle. We'd all sit back and say, what is going on? What on earth happened to her before she got here? You see, the bride of Christ is to be presented blameless and spotless before the throne of God. And we will be because of God, because of Christ. But in the meantime, we do all we can to beautify the bride. We do all we can to make sure the the, the bride is clean. We do all we can to make sure the bride is, is, is set in, in perfection for the bridegroom when he comes because we're living in anticipation. And we want to be ready when he arrives. So we repent of our sin. We confess our sin. We're right one with another. We love one another. We encourage one another. We stimulate one another. We motivate one another. We testify to the name of Christ for the glory of Christ. Because we know Jesus is coming. And so we go out and we tell others. Because we want them to be a part of the bride. See? It motivates us. So they can be a part of what you experience all the time. Because the church is the priority of the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity to give us a study of your word. Truly, you are great and ready to be praised. Thank you, Father, for what you teach us. Thank you, Lord, that we are here today. Thank you, Lord, for moving us, motivating us to live for you. As we leave this place, we pray that we leave in a way that would bring glory to your name. As we live this week, may we live to the glory of your name and anticipate the gathering once again next Lord's Day on the first day of the week to worship the person we cannot wait to exalt once again. In Jesus' name, amen.